0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Chadwick Boseman, Oprah Winfrey, Spike Lee, all graduates of historically black colleges and universities. For more than a century, HBCUs provided the foundation for countless dynamic and influential leaders. Now, some academic finance experts predict that a quarter of those schools could be gone within 20 years. There are nine HBCUs in Georgia. One of them, Morris Brown College, is currently seeking reaccreditation. And I'm joined by race and culture Reporter Ernie Suggs to talk about the ups and downs of HBCUs. He's with the AJC. Ernie also collaborated with Eric Sturgis, who couldn't be here, on a series about the health and well being and future of HBCUs. Ernie, welcome.
2: Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, thanks for being here. Start with Morris Brown College in Atlanta, now seeking accreditation more mm. than a decade after losing it, which nearly caused the school to shut down. So you've been covering it for a sure. long time. Can mm. you remind us of what happened?
2: Yeah. and two, Well, one thing I want to just uh, offer like a slight correction is that uh, there, are, there are nine accredited HBCUs in Georgia. Morris Brown will be the 10th HBCU in Georgia, but they're not accredited. Got it. So thank you. Kinda, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. So in 2002, after 1998 to, through 2002 tenure of Dolores Cross, the school lost its accreditation. She was the president. She was the president. It was a lot of financial mismanagement going on, using financial aid money wrong. So basically, the uh, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools revoked their accreditation. And as you know, and as your listeners would know, well, you don't have accreditation through SACS for a Southern school, a Southern college, and all colleges and schools are accredited through SACS in the South. You don't have eligibility for financial aid or for any kind of federal funding. So that money dries up immediately. And therefore, you don't have, you know, students can't afford to go to school. You're not getting any grant money. You're not getting in that funding that you would normally get and expect. So the school basically is not technically shut down, but it's essentially shut down. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they have probably fewer than 50 students. Uh, none, of none of them get financially. None of them get fine None of them get federal financial aid. They may get loans or something. Uh-huh. Like that, but they, they don't get federal financial aid. Uh, the school is uh, a, a fraction of what it was in terms of its um, property and where where it is. The the footprint. The footprint. If you go by the football field, which was built in, which was dedicated in 1996 for the Olympics, and they played Olympic soccer there, it looks just like a war zone. So, to drive by Morris Brown College is to kind of just to see. Uh, a a failure of of leadership, a failure of academic promise. And just it's sad just to kind of see that, you know, now, you know, they have a a new leader who's on social media a lot. He's always, you know, traveling and trying to raise money to get the school accredited to get the school uh, back on, you know, on, on, on solid ground. So, but that's going to be a long struggle. It's Mm -hmm. been 2002 since they lost accreditation Um, you know, they were in so much debt, they're having a hard time raising money. They've always had a hard time raising money. And, you know, at one point, you know, this school probably had, you know, two or 3,000 students, probably 20. 25 years ago.
1: Now 48, I now think. Now
2: about 48 students,
1: yeah. 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 Well, it's, so the, the, the interim president you're speaking of, his name is Kevin James. Mm-hmm. He says it's going to be accredited within 12 to 18 months. But this is accreditation from the Transnational Association of Christian Colleges and Schools. What's the difference in that and SACS, which you mentioned earlier? Arou- uh, well,
2: SACS is kind of like, you know, I guess- The gold Sachs, standard? It's, yeah, it's kind of the major leagues of, of accreditation. All Southern schools, University of North Carolina, University of Georgia- Spellman, Morehouse—they're all accredited by SACS. That's what you want to be accredited by. Um, the Transnational is a—it's an accrediting agency for Christian schools. It's not SACS. There's probably a limited amount of federal funding that you can get, but it's still not SACS. It's still—you're not a SACS-affiliated school. Um, when I mentioned when I uh, corrected you, and I apologize for that. When I mentioned that there were ten HBCUs, the reason that there were ten—the reason that there are nine listed HBCUs—is that the federal government doesn't recognize Morris Brown because they're not accredited uh, through SACs. So right. that's why you have nine instead of 10 in Georgia.
1: Well, so now Kevin James says it's going to work. It's going to be accredited within 12 to 18 months. They are on a capital campaign to make that happen. Uh, they're at $260,000 on the way to $5 million. So yeah. how realistic is this goal, do you think? It's going to be, be
2: tough. I mean, you can look. Um, you know, about 250, 300 miles north to Greensboro, North Carolina, Bennett College. Mm-hmm. Bennett College was in the same situation last year, uh, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this year. Well, yeah, last year. Mm-hmm. They raised $8 million. They raised about $9 million of an $8 million goal because they were in, in, in threat of losing their accreditation to SACS. They raised that money, but Sachs still revoked their accreditation because they didn't feel that they had a sustainable model for sustaining that money. So it's just like if if you can't pay your rent and I give you $500 to pay your rent. What are you going to do next month when you, when, I, when you spent that $500? So that's basically what Sachs was saying to Bennett College. So Bennett College is now suing Sachs because they raised the $8 million and they, they weren't giving their accreditation back. And now they are accredited by Sachs, but it's going through court now. But they're also trying, as, as you mentioned with Morris Brown, to get that transnational accreditation, which is for a Christian school.
1: Now, Ernie, your own newspaper reported in 2015 that graduation rates in HBCUs lower than 20 Mm percent, a lot of financial challenges. Are these just happening for HBCUs or is this other small private colleges? They're all tuition dependent for the most part.
2: Well, uh, uh, there are more public um, HBCUs than private HBCUs um, for for your listeners. But, yeah, this is happening at small colleges. I mean, HBCUs are under a greater microscope, particularly in the north, in the south. Because, you know, they have such a great influence on on African-Americans in the South and building the black middle class in the South. So we know about HBCUs. So you get you know, you get series and stories from Eric and I about them. But it's happening at all small colleges, all small colleges. There have been, you know, for all for every HBCU that's closed over the last 20 years has been a. A white school that's closed over the last 20 years so you know it's just not something that's endemic to hbcus it's just it probably hurts a little bit more because of the purpose that they serve and 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 what they mean to the culture and to um the communities that they serve so it may hurt a little bit more um but it's happening at a lot of places
1: and this is one of the the cases made that there was a, for a long time that was the only choice for black students. Now there are many, many yeah. choices. So there's no longer the same sign of kind of filial bond or, you know, the kind of financial bonds that many people once had.
2: Yeah, there I mean, I was having a conversation, if I can get personal a little bit. I went to a North Carolina Central University, which is a historically black college in North Carolina, in Durham, North Carolina, and we just tore down our male dormitory called Chili Hall. It'd been around since nineteen fifty one. And I lived there and it was the only male dormitory on campus for you know, since 1951. So every man that went to North Carolina Central University from 1951 to about 2002 lived in that dormitory. They tore it down recently. And a lot of people are upset about the fact that they tore it down, but the reason that they tore it down was because the building was obsolete. And when you have a building that is obsolete like that, regardless of how historic it is, it's not gonna attract students that you want at that school. Students now want dormitories with suites, they -hmm. want co-ed dormitories, they want co-eds, they want dormitories with cafeterias in them, which that building, as as much as we love that building, did not have. So HBCUs have to put themselves in a position to compete with white schools, to compete with rich small schools, to get these top students. Because yeah, at one point when I was going to college, you know, well, not when I was going to college. I could have gone to any college I wanted to. But at, at some point, North Carolina Central University was a destination college for a lot of black people in North Carolina. Now it is not. Now, I, you know, kids can go to UNC or Duke or you, you know, UNCG just as easily and get more money, more benefits. You know, so these schools have to start competing. Um, for these top students so it's not the only place you can go anymore so therefore it becomes more difficult to raise money more more difficult to be attractive and you got to come up with ways to be that
1: my guest is AJC races race and culture reporter Ernie Suggs we're talking about the history and legacies of HBCU's Atlanta's Morris Brown College is currently fighting to regain accreditation well I'm glad you mentioned that you know the idea of the single gender or the single single sex college this is, and competing in the contemporary universe in the same neighborhood as Morris Brown, we have Morehouse College. Uh, this year, just recently, approved transgender student enrollment in their new policy. So, transgender students can enroll. Uh, they are there for the 2020 semester. And students who are currently enrolled are not affected by the policy. Now, this is a major step for the college, considering that it was dedicated to the education of African American yeah. men. So, what has the response been? Uh, their response has been
2: uh, mixed I think you know if you look on social media a lot of a lot of students are upset about or a lot of alums are upset about it because as you said Morehouse College was founded on a certain principle uh, to educate black men you know black men um, were not being educated or well, they were being educated black men this was a a special place for them it's a place that you know birth Martin Luther King jr. Samuel Boas Cook, Spike Lee so many so many great men who who have done great things in america not to say that you know men who are gay or transgender don't belong there but it's a different step it's a it's, it's taking the school in a different direction and that's going to be a lot of that's a lot of change for a lot of people and a lot of people have to come to that exception to that expectation that this is going to be changed, and it's going to be tough. I mean, Spelman is going through the same thing with their students in terms of accepting uh, transgender students. They started in twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen, just like you know, and I think a lot of the um, the prominent, significant all female schools in the Northeast have been doing that for years. And Spelman kind of just kind of followed that path. Single sex schools have to be open to kind of. Looking at that as people start identifying themselves in different ways.
1: And on the other side, there have been people who said, this is, doesn't go far enough. There are exemptions exactly, here. Exactly, exactly. You know, yeah. if somebody is transitioning, mm-hmm. they can't be a student. If they're transitioning male to female, yeah, they exactly. couldn't be a student. Yeah, okay. exactly.
2: yeah.
1: Well, the culture is certainly more comfortable with having conversations surrounding LGBT. Yeah. And as we move forward on national and political policies, with the history of Morehouse's tradition,
2: do you think it's going to ultimately help or hurt the university? I I don't know if it will help or help. I mean, help or hurt. I don't think it hurt. I don't think anything will hurt more. I mean, Morehouse College or, or Spelman College because they're two very you know good schools are with you, good you, reputations.
1: Interesting point here. I mean, there are a number of small HBCUs that have financial and economic challenges. H five have closed since 1989. So what are the bigger ones like Spelman and Morehouse doing that others have not?
2: Well, Spelman and Morehouse. Let, let's let's look at them as private schools. They're private schools. They are small. You know, they're you know Clark Atlanta has more students. Georgia State has more black students than every HBCU in the country. Actually, actually, um, but Morris, I mean, Morehouse and Spelman are special in a sense that they have alums who um, support, give back, who give back. Mm-hmm. I mean, not. You know, Claflin College gives back. Their alums give back at about a 50% clip, which is unprecedented. Only about four HBCUs get back at about 20%, Spelman being one, um, which is really good, really good. I mean, um, I think on average, HBCU alums get back about 3%, which is very, very bad. But Morris – I mean, I keep saying Morris Brown, but Morehouse and Spelman have alums, and they have reputations. They have solid track records of, of, of placing students in graduate schools, placing students in good programs after college, uh, placing students in good jobs after college, and they have good reputations, and they can they sustain those reputations. Um, you walk on their campuses, and they they let you know that you're on Morehouse and Spelman's campus, which I think a lot of HBCUs don't do. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, public HBCUs are in a different boat. You know, you have North Carolina A and T, which has thirteen thousand students, Howard, Florida A and M, my school, North Carolina Central University, all of which have in excess of 10,000 students. So you have these large HBCUs that have state funding that are doing very well financially, and they're in, in no danger of of, of being lost. So,
1: so we're up against a break, uh, Ernie, but I do want you to stick around with us. We're going to continue to have a conversation with AJC race and culture reporter Ernie Suggs. Pick up the conversation after a short break. But a little program note before we head into the break. We did have a... Yesterday, a conversation with our cohort, Don Smith, producing Rich's Remembered for GBB Originals. He got his World Wars wrong. Rich's employees sang soldier songs when the doors opened at the store during World War I, not the second World War, as he said on yesterday's show. He does apologize. we got some great comments from you in our Facebook group asking you to share your memories of Rich's department store, some terrific ones. Uh, Some said they were listening to their childhood and the pink pig and the tree lighting. You can join them theirs and go to our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought. We'll be right back with more of On Second Thought and Ernie Suggs after a quick break. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. i Virginia Prescott, along with Ernie Suggs, who's looked closely at the issues surrounding historically black colleges and universities. He's a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who covers race and culture and education. So, Ernie, let's look. But You talked a little bit about the legacy earlier, but let's look at how the black education system helped build this middle class that we know today.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the first HBCU, uh, we talked about it earlier during the break, uh, Cheney, University, or people argue that uh, Lincoln, Cheney was founded in 1837, Lincoln was founded in 1856, um, both in Pennsylvania. Shaw University was founded in 1865 in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the first HBCU in the South. So if you look at that, if you look at those three uh, years, 1865 is right after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And right after the Civil War, during the Reconstruction, all of these HBCUs started popping up. And these are HBCUs that are freeing that are teaching the sons and daughters of former slaves and slaves. So you're you're automatically and you know, obviously the educational system wasn't as advanced as it should have been or could have been, but you're creating a network of colleges, of over a hundred colleges that are protecting and educating these former slaves and building something, building a black middle class. Um I keep going back to my HBCU. But there was a discussion on our Facebook page about, you know, what generational curses have you broken? Mm -hmm. And by that, what that question means is that, you know, well, the answer to a lot of that question was that I was the first person in my family to go to college. And when you consider that the first HBCU started in 1837, you still have a large majority of students on black college campuses who are still the first people in their family to go to college. That's amazing. And that automatically changes your family's trajectory. It changes the path of your family because, you you know, you're going from high school graduates and, you know, jobs that are getting by that are just getting by to being able to go to graduate school being able to get a job at a fortune 500 company being able to go and teach or do something productive so they continue to build the black middle class they continue to serve that purpose of kind of building us and serving giving us a landing place to go to get that education sure there are places we can go anywhere we want to go right now you know as opposed to 20 30 40 years ago. But those HBCUs are so important in a, in a sense that we have that place that we know we can go that we know we're going to be nurtured, we know we're going to be looked after, you know. I still talk to, you know, I graduated from college in 1990. I'm still very close to a lot of my professors that I still talk to, still get advice from. They still offer me advice sometimes unsolicited. Um, but that's part of what that HBCU, that HBCU experience is. And it's kind of just kind of building. I'm the first person in my family to go to college and, you know, my life is totally different than what it would have been had I not gone to college.
1: Well, and you did a series HBCU journeys. This is you wrote a series for the newspaper, but mm-hmm. also did the series of podcasts. Yes, yes. And to a person, those that you spoke to, they were talked about having they were attracted to a sense of belonging, a yes. sense of yeah. sisterhood or brotherhood, mm-hmm. and also being academically pushed yeah. forward, being challenged. Yeah. So, yeah. so those ingredients. In fact, we can hear just a little bit. This is from one of the podcasts. This is HBCU journeys.
3: So, I like to say that um, I didn't choose Spellman. Spellman chose me. Um, I went on an uh, HBCU tour when I was in the eighth grade, and I got a chance to visit different HBCUs, and Spellman was one of them. And um, from there, I got to uh, participate in a pre enrollment program at Spellman, and that's where I really made my choice. Um, I got to attend Spellbound. so that's something that you get to go to when you first get accepted, and yeah, that's how I ended up at Spelman.
1: So yeah. the, 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 those kind of stories you've heard over and over. Those
2: again. Those are the kind of stories I've heard pretty much all my life, and that was uh, Tiffany Green. She was a graduate, twenty fourteen graduate of Spelman College. I didn't know you were going to play that, but she was the uh, she was the. Um, the catalyst for all why we wanted to do the podcast, based on a photograph we took of her several years ago when she graduated, and um, the photograph was such an indelible image of her getting her diploma from Spelman College that you know years later when we decided to do the series and podcast, we wanted to revisit her to see how her life has turned out um, post Spelman graduation. So, well,
1: yeah. you know, the, besides her women like her mm-hmm. and others that you spoke to of course we have the the great legacy of Dr Martin Luther King Jr attending Morehouse and when i first moved to atlanta somebody told me that what explains atlanta is the presence of hbcus that there is this you know educated black middle class that mm-hmm. are, it does not exist in such in such plentiful form yeah. in other cities mm-hmm. and that there was also that was part of the Basis of the foundation of the civil rights movement. You had an educated class of people. What what role do you think that that has played?
2: It played a tremendous role. I mean it, not only in Georgia, but in Alabama um, A lot of the people who were leaders of the HBC or leaders of the civil rights movement were affiliated with colleges They would all obviously have been well, Not all of them, but a lot of them had been HBC graduates or HBC students uh, the Atlanta <clears throat> the Atlanta student movement right here in Atlanta is you know, that kind of basically sustained the civil rights movement here in Atlanta, although Martin Luther King Jr. graduated from Morehouse College. 1960, February 1st, 1960, at, at, at North Carolina A&T, which is my college's rival, but I have to give them credit for starting the sit-in movement They with four students at North Carolina A&T. Bennett College, um, you know, one of the things about Bennett College is, you know, hopefully we were not going to lose that college, but the, the ladies of Bennett College played a very, very integral role and helping with the sit-in movements in Greensboro and kind of spurring that whole thing. The sit-in movements in, in, in ten Nashville, Tennessee, and the and the um, the Freedom Rise. These are all HBCU students. These are all HBCU graduates. So they played a tremendous role in, in, in helping define and shape the civil rights movement. And the fact that Atlanta has so many HBCUs in a, such a concentrated area – This is the most concentrated area of HBCUs in the country, although North Carolina has more um, HBCUs spread out all over the state. But, yeah, it, it made a difference to have all that black intellectual power in one central place to kind of spur and spark this movement.
1: So this podcast series has ended. You've ended the, I'm sure you're going to continue to report on this, but but after working on this series, what do you see as the future of these historic colleges? You know, we already made the point where people have so many choices now. 50 years ago, 90% of all black college students went to black colleges. Now 90% are at mostly white schools.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't have the dire um, outlook that some of the experts have. Um, I think a lot of the HBCUs are going to survive. I mean, as a matter of fact, over the last two years, the last set of data that we have from 2017, HBCU enrollment is up 2.1%. So it's gone up from um, 292,000 to 298,000, which is a little bit under 300,000 students. Uh, Each of the nine HBCUs in Georgia, seven of the nine HBCUs in Georgia between 2016 and 2017 have seen increases in enrollment. Savannah State and I think Albany State have seen declines. So I think that, you know, I think we're going to be okay. We're going to lose some. We lost, you know, since we published the series, we've lost two HBCUs. Uh, and perhaps maybe Bennett, hopefully not, but you know, I think we're gonna be okay. And I think they'll all come be back
1: okay. because of Beyonce.
2: Oh my God, she's great. <laughs> we didn't talk about Beyonce. <laughs> Ernie, there's so much more I could talk with you about. Yeah. Thank
1: you so much with, for speaking with well, us. Well, thank you for having me, it's been great. That's Ernie Suggs, he's a race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In 2017, the University of Georgia held a ceremony to rebury remains discovered during a campus construction project. DNA analysis showed that most of the dead were likely enslaved people. In 2018, UGA created a memorial to these individuals at Baldwin Hall, which houses the anthropology and criminal justice departments at the university. But members of the Athens community and others say that's just not enough. In just a moment, we're going to hear from a student who's been following the story for UGA's independent student newspaper and an historian pressing SEC schools to confront their role in slavery. But for context, here is Brad. Bradley George reporting on the reburial for a GBB in 2017.
4: Workers are putting the finishing touches on a new wing of Baldwin Hall. It should have been finished a year ago, but construction stopped as UGA anthropologist Laurie Reitzema and her team searched for unmarked graves from the mid 19th century.
0: Some of them remained unexcavated because they were partially underneath the foundation of the building. And from the remaining graves that were excavated, 63 of them had some kind of human remains that we could actually observe and study.
4: Of the graves they DNA tested, most were black. Given the time period, many were likely slaves. But the university's announcements about the discovery made no mention of slavery, and the remains were put in a cemetery that was once segregated. Those decisions upset Fred Smith, former president of the local NAACP. He says UGA has failed to acknowledge its history with slavery.
1: They have a slave legacy, and let's deal with it from all
4: points of view. Michelle Cook is UGA's chief diversity officer. Her great-great-great-grandparents were born into slavery and lived in Athens their whole lives. She says the university had to follow proper procedure for reburying the remains.
0: And one of their recommendations was that the remains be reinterred in a cemetery close to the original burial site and with the capacity to accommodate the original configuration of the burial spaces.
4: Best practice would have been not to move these individuals at all. Anthropologist Michael Trinkley is director of the Chikora Foundation, which restores abandoned grave sites and cemeteries. The fact that these individuals are... 50 years, 100 years, 200 years old, to many does not reduce the trauma of the event of of removal. Not far from the construction site, Linda Davis is leading efforts to restore a cemetery used for decades by Athens' black community. She wishes the Baldwin Hall remains were reburied here, a reminder of the lingering effects of slavery and segregation.
0: I want us to not make a conscious decision to ignore our our past because we don't like it. I don't like it either, but I cannot get past the strength and the conviction and the courage that it gives me to know that I am a descendant of survivors.
4: The University of Georgia says the 105 grave sites are reinterred individually under a granite marker that describes how they were found. For NPR News, I'm Bradley George in Athens.
1: And we're picking up that story now with Sophie Gratis from the Red and Black Student Newspaper. Sophie, welcome.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks for being here. A couple of years have passed since UGA reburied these remains of those 100-plus individuals into proper graves. Earlier this school year, the university built a monument to honor that legacy. We do have a photo on our Facebook group, so you can take a look at that. But, Sophie, could you walk us around that? What does it look like?
3: Sure, I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, It's got four, or not four, but it's got some square columns in the middle that kind of overlap each other. It's got a stone uh, memorial on the side talking about how the remains were found, a little bit about the history. Um, But I'd say it really kind of shines when um, students actually hold events there. So for example, earlier in February during Black History Month, There was an SGA-hosted kind of memorial for the slave remains where some students came and had a vigil, so they had candles, they sang songs. So those types of celebrations really make the memorial shine, I would say.
1: So, the memorial begins in memory of the unknown individuals interred in this area during the 19th century, and goes on to describe how their remains were discovered and identify. And then it says, the University of Georgia recognizes the contributions of these and other enslaved individuals and honors their legacy. May they continue to rest in peace. How did the Athens community respond at the time when it was dedicated?
3: Well, there was a protest, actually. So. At the memorial dedication on november 16th 2018 there were protesters and that included commissioner mariah parker um, and then other community members Um, and you know the response wasn't necessarily a response of joy specifically from the black community um while the memorial itself covers most of what happened in terms of you know when the remains were found and how they were dealt with um it the memorial service was not responded to with, um, much celebration. It was more the administration kind of making an effort to show what had been done. Um, but the community members weren't very happy about it.
1: So who you mentioned community members, but I am also seeing NAACP people, um, uh, members of faculty. What, what are they asking? What kind of action do they want to see from the university beyond what's been done?
3: Well, it's notable to mention the letter that, um, there that was sent to President Moorhead. So it was a letter sent by the Athens Anti Discrimination Movement, the Clark County NAACP chapter, um, Athens for Everyone, and I don't want to miss anyone, um, but a couple other community groups like that. Um, and they really want the you they really want the university to apologize for um, the lack of. I guess, acknowledgement of really what's going on. So while the university has, and this is under um, UGA President Moorhead's kind of administration, has definitely dotted its eyes and crossed its T's and done everything kind of correctly. Um, Community members in these community groups that I mentioned before, really feel like they're not looking at the underlying issue, which is that um, the black community was not really Part of the conversation as to what was going to happen with these remains, um, and that kind of goes back to when they were reinterred at a Coney Hill Cemetery rather than some of the cemeteries that Linda Davis, who's on the Clark County School Board, wanted to put those remains in. Right, so, so they were they were like sent
1: that. off campus or outside of that area rather than right where they were discovered. Well, and speaking of dotting I's and crossing T's, the UGA president, Jerry Moorhead, did write a letter to the editor in the red and black saying, like, we did it right. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. What has the response been to that?
3: There was a response to that letter. So the Moorhead's letter came in in response to the letter that was first brought forth by the community groups that I mentioned. And then in response to that, um, you know, In the letter, they kind of criticized Moorhead for, and this is in quotes, the same tired explanations and excuses that we have heard from the UGA administration before. So really just kind of criticizing the administration for not taking a creative approach to the way that this situation could have been handled. Um, And that's really kind of the biggest thing that they've been calling UGA out on. Um, They suggest that there are better ways to move forward, and they want UGA to come to the table to discuss solutions rather than kind of, you know, rather than just, say, this is over and done with, we had the memorial, we've done everything we needed to do, let's stop talking about it.
1: Okay, and this was a, also a letter from faculty, a 120-page document saying that there had been expressing concerns about reinterment process, academic freedom, rather, and even, uh, quoting here, intimidation and policing of faculty teaching activities. Sophie, I wonder if you can hang on with us for a short break and come back and address some of those concerns.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. We are speaking with Sophie Gratis. She is city news editor for UGA's student newspaper, The Red and Black. We'll be back with more of this conversation after a quick break. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Town and gown tension is high in Athens, Georgia. Community activists and faculty are pressing the UGA administration to do more to address the university's historical role in slavery. We're talking about that with Sophie Grada, city news editor for UGA student newspaper, The Red and Black. Also talking about the legacy of slavery at SEC schools more broadly. Hillary Green is going to join us. She's a professor at the University of Alabama. She also leads tours about Alabama's slave past. But Sophie, I want to pick up what we were just talking about, that the ad hoc committee on Baldwin Hall, that's where the memorial is, submitted a report to the Faculty Senate of UGA's Colleges of Arts and Sciences, 120 pages expressing concerns and saying that there's been intimidation and policing of faculty teaching activities. What did they say they're concerned about?
3: So that was an interesting part of the report. Scott Nesbitt, who's a digital humanities professor at UGA, said that the university should acknowledge its history of slavery. And that was quoted in an article. And then later, an unnamed UGA administrator told Nesbitt that Pamela Witten, who's the former provost at the university, was not pleased with his remarks. So that was kind of her quote. Um, And that was just kind of one example of how administrators felt they had been attacked. I mean, it's I think that one of the biggest things to, to kind of focus on is that administrators and faculty members in the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences were doing most of the research regarding Baldwin Hall, and they felt like they had, they were not being listened to. So the ad hoc committee was actually suggested in March of 2018, and they didn't start doing work until September for whatever kind of administrative reason, you know, how those things go slow. Um, and still at this moment in time the report was accepted actually last night um and the ad hoc committee will remain in place as an investigatory body um but they still don't feel like they've been listened to and the faculty members wanted to make it known to the administration that they felt more could have been done in terms of supporting their research and supporting uh, collaboration with community members that had expressed so much kind of disdain with with how this whole thing was handled. If
1: you don't mind, I'm going to hold on and bring in Hillary Green. She's a professor at the University of Alabama. She teaches classes and co-directs the African American Studies program. Hillary also leads alternative campus tours about the lives and experiences and legacy of enslaved people who worked at the University of Alabama in the 19th century. Hillary, thanks for holding on. Thank you for having me. Well, glad to have you with us. So, you know, we are talking about something that is going on specifically at UGA, but this is going on in colleges and universities across the country. This awareness of this, the past of universities and profiting from or owning people, uh, enslaved people. Mm-hmm. So, when you're listening to this and hearing what the faculty is saying, what are you hearing?
0: I'm hearing where my institution was back in the early 2000s when we were one of the first institutions uh, following Brown to apologize for the owning of use of slavery. And the um, efforts led by Al Brophy and others and making that bold decision, ad hoc community groups and the like. So we predate this, but some of those early debates mirrored that.
1: So, why was Alabama so ahead of the curve? Was it about the people or the players or the administration?
0: it was a combination of everything um it was the faculty is led by um al brophy law professor who had across the swath uh, faculty support it was a graduate student support it was undergrad support it was alumni support and community members (laughs) and coming together in a uniquely community-based solution to recognize a slave cemetery that exists on campus and to get it um, preserved rather than destroyed and that led to that apology, and uh, it and so for me that's where you need a creative solution, but you need to consist uh, all stakeholders involved and it's more than just the UGA but the broader Tuscaloosa community in there, so the institutions that we find ourselves in these schools are and that legacy also impacts that community so it's You need all of that together.
1: Well, Sophie, finals do start next week. Graduation is May 10th. How aware are UGA students of what's going on at Baldwin Hall?
3: I think that for the majority, the black students are the ones that are kind of understanding this issue more. Obviously, they're going to understand it more. Um, But in terms of people talking about the issue I'll be honest with you and saying that we talk about it in the newsroom at the red and black Mm -hmm. but I haven't heard many students talking about it on campus about you know the response from the community what should be done or anything like that SGA is slightly involved but at the same time they're tied to administration so how they respond is is kind of dependent on on that
1: so since it's largely community driven do you suspect that it might fizzle out when uh, students leave for the summer
3: I don't think so, because the community members that are really kind of making their voices heard are not students for the most part, they're commissioners, they're members of um, progressive groups that are, you know, part of Athens, and I mean, it's also kind of important to remember that students may not really be understanding, um, or not understanding, but being able to relate to what's going on, it's more so the people that are on the ground protesting the administration. like they did at the memorial and and it's more it's not so much students as it is just community members that have lived here for a long time and understand the history and respect the history a little bit more
1: I do want to ask you about another story that the red and black broke last month. This is the UGA chapter of the fraternity, Tau Kappa Epsilon, or Teak, as it's known, Mm -hmm. was suspended after a group of white students appeared in a racist viral video. The students used racial epithets while, quote-unquote, whipping another fraternity member and telling him to pick my cotton. What was the university's response to that?
3: It was pretty prompt, I will say. Um, The students, after a brief investigation, the students were expelled from the fraternity, not from the university, just from the fraternity. And Moorhead did issue a response to the incident. Um, But students ended up coming together to talk about things that they had felt on campus, you know, racism, microaggressions, things that that they felt they wanted to to voice. um, and that was more of a student-led response rather than an administrative response. There really wasn't a, a huge response on the, the administration's part.
1: So what kind of dialogue was there on campus after that? I and mean, is this seen as connected to an administration accused of not taking concerns about racial history more seriously?
3: I think it just kind of adds to that narrative for sure, because... You have these incidents that happen and then you have kind of these scripted response coming from the administration in the terms of like press releases. And even then, I mean, Moorhead wasn't didn't go to any of these meetings and the administrative um, people on the administration went, but they were they declined to comment. Things like that were sure they're acknowledging what's happening, but whether change is actually being implemented on campus is is questionable. I mean, it's really not. One thing that has been done is there's the College of Education is going to be named after one of the first UGA or one of the fat, first black women who graduated from UGA, Mary Frances Early. And that was actually in, in one of Morehead's response. He said, you know, this is one of the things that we're doing. But is that really what needs to be done? Is that what the black community and black students want? are not really sure
1: well yes we've spoken to mary francis early on this very program and proud to do so sophie i know you have a a a newspaper to put to bed so i want to thank you so much for your time
3: Thanks for talking with
1: me. Sophie Grada, she's City News editor for UGA's independent student newspaper, The Red and Black. Want to keep you on the line certainly Hillary, you mentioned that this, mm-hmm. you know, back in 2004, the University of Alabama made these moves to mm-hmm. acknowledge and and apologize for publicly apologize for having profited from slavery. Is it obvious parallel between Alabama and UGA that you know, there's a marker, there's an acknowledgment. What other parallels do you see between these two schools and the ongoing dialogues about slavery on college campuses?
0: One of the things when I arrived at the University of Alabama in 2014, despite having a marker, despite this bold history, what has, emer- what has emerged was a silence around we gave them a marker. That's all we need to do. Mm hmm. So my second semester at the University of Alabama, I had a black male student in one of my classes question, well, slavery did not exist here, so why does this matter? And this, and what it made me realize was, despite this, the lack of ongoing engagement that students could come to the campus, and he wasn't alone. Um, I, I started asking other students. I went on the tour, figure out what they were learning, <laughs> and talked to people who did the um, orientation and realized. They're not getting this information. A lot of them didn't know where this apology marker was. They didn't know this history. It was as if it never existed. So that prompted me to go into the archives and to develop a tour. And this student comment occurred in late January 2015, so my second semester. I gave my first tour that um, August in the heat with, (laughs) with a group of students. Um, and since now, um, four years in, I'm almost at 4,000. I just went over 4,000 people reached. Um, and it includes students, faculty, alumni, and their own Black History Month uh, community members.
1: Okay, so this is not an obligatory, you know, with mm-hmm. student orientation tour, people sign up for this tour. What do you call them?
0: I call them the hallowed ground tours.
1: Hmm, the hallowed to ground tours. to remind
0: us the, of the land that we're walking on, the people who work there and are hidden and their labor is hidden in plain sight.
1: What, what are some of the kind of things that people are surprised by that you discovered in the archives about specific humans? I mean, of course there's not a lot of record for a lot of enslaved people. but what have you found?,
0: you know, one of the things I, I've made a point is that instead of having this one monolithic mass was to connect individuals with specific existing buildings. So on the tour to get a general history, but on, in front of certain buildings, they actually learned the names of the people who worked in that space and what their experiences were like there. And when, uh, we, and then I also addressed the legacy, the legacy part of the campus, but also to, in my research, I, am a, I do post-war information. I made sure I figured out what happened to these people after the Civil War. So I've now identified five individuals, including their wills, I know when they died, <laughs> and what they did. So connecting them from slavery and when the campus is destroyed to what happened afterwards, and they all became educators and activists in Tuscaloosa. Hmm. So that connection between the town and the city, and then pick up the story with the Civil Rights Movement and that history and that training was done in the town coming back into the campus. So it's that long, extended legacy. But they learn about people.
1: We're speaking with the historian and University of Alabama Professor Hillary Green, and we're it's part of a conversation about the history of slavery on college campuses, and this is something that has been looked at by a consortium of schools mm-hmm. right now, uh, that include Harvard University, Wesleyan University here in Georgia, a number of them who are which are studying the effects of slavery and the role of enslaved people inside of college campuses. Mm-hmm. However, is Alabama a part of that? We are not, uh, but this is one of
0: the recent developments in my re-engagement. Last October, um, the Faculty Senate actually passed a resolution to, 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 join, to do more about this history, to have a more of a, not just an ad hoc committee, uh, but a commission. And then a part of that commission when the first task would to be to join the um, consortium. And it is in the works. Um, it's going to be led by Dr. Uh, Christine Taylor, who's our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, um, VP, Senior VP, and uh, it's in, process, in progress. So it will, I, I, we will be soon, hopefully, fingers crossed, join in soon, but it's, the process has started.
1: So this is, you know, at a time when just last week, students at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. voted on a referendum. This is a non-binding resolution to pay reparations to uh, people, enslaved people. So this is something that a lot of universities and schools are looking at. Um, here in Georgia, you know, there's been a, the Athens chapter of the NAACP sent President Moorhead an open letter urging the university to take responsibility for its mm-hmm. role in white supremacy, and going further than that, creating full-tuition scholarships for descendants of enslaved people who worked mm-hmm. on UGA's campus. Uh, what kind of response are these kind of demands making, uh, being made in, this, in Southern schools, for example, in SEC schools?
0: One of the things I hear is not just the scholarship and part of the um, reparations, because I have heard those calls across the board. But one of the things is it's a demand for a multi-prong, multi-dimensional solution. So scholarships is one thing, and UGA has a unique situation that most schools don't are more aligned with Georgetown. They got the DNA of these. Um, 25 individuals
1: mm-hmm.
0: so they can actually prove descent and expand in the category what is legacy when you really do have legacy uh, the land that the school built on with people who were uh, most likely enslaved of African descent and with the advents of genealogy and ancestry.com and others it might be they can actually prove descent <laughs> where other individuals don't have that. Mm-hmm. I'm clear line but ongoing education and that's one of the things I've heard across the board this is not just a monument an apology but what do you do for sustainable discussions tours markers buildings classes all of that as a part of a reparation suite of Solutions, not just one all fits all model.
1: Right, and so this consortium of universities are they? They're studying slavery. Have, mm-hmm. There's any kind of standardized set of uh, of curriculum or even reparations for for slavery on college campuses, or is it a case by case basis?
0: It's usually case by case. But one of the things that's consistent because each campus is different and each communities are different. But one thing that cuts across the board is education towards and some form of scholarship fund <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: in there, and um, new buildings, new memorials. So our naming practices are buildings. The uh, University of Alabama just named the building after our legacy from the Civil Rights Movement. And one of the things I've seen, um, the young woman who was there before, is sometimes this history of slavery is used in current-day race problems. Okay. And so that... How do you respond and preempt that? But also how do you become the capstone and lead your schools and lead your states?
1: So we have just a minute left, but I mm-hmm. want to go back to this this open letter mm-hmm. from the Athens organizations inviting UGA's administration to a public meeting called Reparations Now Town Hall. That's planned for tonight. Mm-hmm. Based on your experience promoting conversations about slavery at Alabama, mm-hmm. Any recommendations for how to achieve a more productive dialogue around something that is painful for very many people to bring up?
0: This is a community-based solution. It's hard, it's difficult, but it requires empathy and it requires listening. And it requires not coming in or with some kind of preconceived notion of what the outcome is, but rather work together and build in that solution. And, that's difficult work, but this is where you can truly have a solution and a, uh, where you can move forward to truly have a reconciled communities. And Athens is a part of the UGA community, so they, too, need to be at the table and ongoing. But to have and listen and work as one, the goal is a better future.
1: Hillary Green, thank you so much for speaking with us.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me. University of Alabama, Professor Hillary Green. She's co-director of Alabama's African-American Studies Program, and more than 4,000 people have participated in her her tours, focused on the lives, experiences, and legacies of enslaved people who worked and lived on the University of Alabama campus before the Civil War. Now, we do have some listener comments for our story about HBCUs. That's on her Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Please join us all. And join us again tomorrow for more of On Second Thought. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Virginia Prescott.